Hello and welcome to um, another session of the Ashens Lounge. Uh, we're continuing the Russian way of war. This is part four. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Phil Blood. Uh, Phil, how are you doing? Hey, Biggles. I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Um, well, I'm not, but, you know. Yeah. Who, uh, um, who wants to hear about my troubles? Least of all you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, sounds so cold and heartless, doesn't it? Really? You are. You <laughs> rat people, all technology and no human being. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying nothing. I, I, actually, I was really last week. I was privileged to meet uh, meet some of the young men and women at the moment who are sort of aspiring to to join 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 the uh, the mother service. No, the Air Force, you hear the junior, so you know, somebody called it the 100-year experiment. Well, actually, you know, I've been going 104 years, so I think that proves the point. Um, and, I, you know, it, it's uh, speaking with the youngsters, and it, and it's nice to see that, you know, the, the RAF is, uh, there's definitely a future in the RAF. Um, uh -huh. And future leaders are, are looking good, you know, um, and they, they're, you know, they're, they're taught by some very excellent staff. Well, all staff are excellent, without doubt. Um, although the PTI, I thought, was a bit shady, but I've always thought that about PTIs. So <laughs> they, they scare me. Um, before we crack on, uh, if you've not listened to any of these sessions before about the Russian way of war, um, listener discretion is advised. Um, we're going to be talking about some things that will, um, will feature trigger topics. So this is listener discretion, 100%. Um, also, if you're new to the series, please do listen to the previous um, three episodes. This is this this series of podcasts um, is reflecting what's occurring um, in in Ukraine. We're assisted by a whole host of bits and pieces that Phil and I have access to, um, as well as interpretation. We, this is these podcasts are not the be all and end all. They're not definitive, um, nor are they stabs in the dark. This is going off um, what we know uh, and, and previous um, knowledge going from from operations elsewhere um, so yeah well what a week what difference a week makes as they say yeah I mean uh, it's not been it's not been very nice um, can I can I just make a disclaimer for one yeah. second uh, a lot of people think that I'm this cold-hearted, calculating analyst of genocide. Um, and I haven't really been posting how I cope with the emotional side of all of this because people assume that because you're a cold-hearted, calculating, genocidal analyst, um, that you don't have any emotion. Well, actually, we do. And I just want to point out that um standing my by by my uh professional quote ethics as such is not to um ignore the fact that i find myself in a strange position with not only former students and colleagues or who are both in the, both sides of this conflict ukrainians and russians um but over the weekend i heard a friend of mine's uh, russian wife um got slapped around and I'm just quite 
emotional about what's been going on and have been for since the whole thing started uh, and just haven't been putting out there on social media and Twitter. Um, I don't think that does anybody any good. I do know that some of our friends, uh, I'm not going to mention any names, um, they have, quote, skin in the game. Um, my way of dealing with this conflict is to try and identify the salient points that I think the public needs to understand so we can all better engage against Putin uh, and try and put, put an end to this war ASAP. So that's my qualifying point. I'm sure that will cheer everybody up because <laughs> what's coming is going to be pretty horrible for the next hour. <laughs> I don't know why I'm there, but my, my computer made a funny noise. Um, Did it? Yeah, so apologies if, that, if you pick that up on the recording. Um, it's sad that you have to do that, if I'm honest. Um, the, the stuff we're talking about, this this is away from, from we, we're talking about contemporary issues. We're talking about contemporary news. I got a stack of DMs about what a loathsome character I am. Uh, the only reason they followed me was so that I would follow them, which is generally my policy. And then they wanted to send all kinds of unpleasant remarks. Um, yeah, I, I mean, wars bring out the best and the worst in people. We seem to be in a odd place. Uh, and I would say this. Um, I'm kind of forgiving on this front because nearly everybody on Twitter that I'm watching and coming across have had no experience of what this kind of genocidal war causes i mean if they'd have if these people who are tweeting the nonsense that they've been tweeting the last 48 hours had lived in the 90s with uh, social media they'd have been bouncing from one genocide to the next um, and would be utter confusion that every one of those genocides was completely different and I think it's important that we, you know, when we discuss it today, as I have done all along, there are different kinds of genocide, many, 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 many different kinds of genocides. And they don't all require war to trigger them. No, they don't. Rwanda be a classic case, case in point. Um, the 90s, you know, this is one thing that I picked up on, that the... the the genocide that is happening is genocide in Ukraine at the moment. There was something I'd seen over the weekend, somebody was saying this is the first time this had happened in Europe since 1945. Um, and I was aghast because no, it isn't. Um, and, and I can say it's actually from personal experience because I was there. You right. Know, you know, former Yugoslavia, um, Kosovo, um, in what is now North, Mas uh, North, North Macedonia. Um, so no, it isn't. You know, um, we forget these. You know, th this is all within very much living memory. Um, so no, this isn't the first time. What it is, it's in an area that we can pretty much we, we find it easy to identify with because it's far closer geographically to home. Um, but I, I still remember this in the nineties. Um, I think I just started my PhD when things were getting hot again in former Yugoslavia. And um, 
I'd been volunteering to help with um, collecting war crimes evidence, which basically meant either talking to victims or people who had relationships with victims um, for collecting evidence and what have you. Yeah. And um, well, to cut a long story short, I got quite angry with the whole thing. Um, much younger then, very hot headed. Uh, and I remember being in a group with scholars and I said, I just hope the the German Air Force joins in now and bombs the hell out of these buggers. And I remember my German colleagues <clears throat> turning around to me and saying, you're a warmonger. And um, it kind of spoke about the way the way people don't think what they're hearing. They didn't, you know, we'd had the conversation only an hour before that I was doing this volunteer work. So they'd heard the kind of stories that I'd had to hear and was recording. And yet when I made the comment that NATO should be bombing or the German Air Force should be bombing Belgrade to stop this stuff, um, I was made the warmonger. You know, there's a, and all of that's coming back. I mean, over this weekend, as I say, with the incidents that have been going on and the things that I've seen and the people involved in this conflict, I'm seeing the same thing happen all over again. It's like, does anybody ever learn? I mean, you know, I've gone from 1960, from the 1960s when I saw children burning under American aircraft. Um, petrol bombs, what do you call them, napalm bombs, hitting villages and children running out of them burning, um, to watching, you know, B-52s bombing forests and Hercules dropping Agent Orange on forests and great men saying we're going to put them back in the Stone Age to, you know, everything that happened in the 80s, 90s, Afghanistan, then Iraq, then Yugoslavia, then Rwanda, then back to Yugoslavia, then blah, 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 then Grozny. I mean, it's like it's it's just been a never ending for me. I mean, you look back, I don't think there's been a year gone by when there hasn't been a disaster. And that's including Biafra, Bangladesh, Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, Yemen. I mean, when does it end? It's just gone on and on and on. And every time the end of these things happen, somebody says, oh, we have to stop it. OK. Good idea, good plan, but we never do. We go back to it again within within days, weeks. We're at it again. I think that's a huge, that's the huge humanitarian calamity for me. I, I know I don't fit the normal post now Holocaust military historian mould, um, but I'm not really that interested in all of this military stuff. For me, it's the humanitarian side uh, to understand how the military works to prevent them from doing this stuff. That That's how we should be thinking. Um, this glorification of war, you know, military logistics to the point of ad nauseum, um, I just don't have much time for anymore. Uh, maybe when I was you know, a teenager, I'd be interested in tanks and lorries and what have you. Um, but I think once you've got collected this knowledge and you understand an awful lot about what's, how these things work, you know, you shouldn't really be spending your time 
whether you're a professor or whether you're a senior writer or what have you, um, pontificating about what, what irrelevant wars and how railway trains and trucks tires burn and whatever other nonsense that goes on there. I mean, it, it, I think what actually has shocked people this weekend is that they've actually seen <laughs> what Putin has been doing for 20 years now in Europe. That's a shock. I don't, I don't think actually, I, I think it's combined, combined with shock but it's, and, and disbelief, but also that I don't think people fully appreciate how close this is to, to be exceptionally dangerous because it is Europe. It is happening on the doorstep. It is part of, and I, and I <clears throat> part of me still, you know, it's kind of help but think that people still haven't made the connection. Well, I think these pretend historians and politicians and scholars who, you know, fill the airways with crap. I think nearly all of them have never actually been to the Ukraine or Poland or any of these places in the East. Or have even come across frontline Russian soldiers. I mean, OK, I have. Um and I don't want to spend my time deciding whether the MARDA tanks are serviceable or what have you. I mean, that just is it, it, that's all irrelevant. What, what I do know is if you train an army which might be waning in its prowess and its capability after a decade of invincibility theories, what's it going to do? And, and the trajectory that I've seen where armies are losing their capability is to resort to genocide. I, I'm now more convinced of it than ever. I initially thought, you know, with this book that I've just recently written about genocide uh, in the sense of the Holocaust and German soldiers committing the Holocaust, it struck me then that the one factor that made a very, very great difference with these soldiers using military tactics to commit genocide and Holocaust struck me that it was compensation for um, reducing prowess. That's not to say that they weren't good soldiers or they were all bad soldiers. It was the fact that they were compensating for their previous capability as large power armies by resorting to methods which were illegal. In, in the way of war. And it, it struck me at the very beginning of this war, everything that I'd read, everything that I'd understood about the Russian army over the last 30 years told me that this army wasn't the same army that had marched proudly into Afghanistan in 1979. Something happened. I can't put my finger on it, but something happened. I, I think somewhere Sorry to interrupt you for a minute, but, but I think somewhere in the in that period between 1989, when the wall came down, round about the time when Yeltsin had taken power in 92, 93 and turned the tanks onto the White House in Moscow, somewhere in that period, the Russian army acknowledged it could no longer fight wars in the way it always believed it could since 1945. And that the declining confidence as a fighting power 
was compensated by an increase in the capability of bombardment and destruction from a distance. And that this factor gave the front end fighting power, which it which was already which was always there, but was now the compensation. And the, the compensation for what? Well, it was the fact that the infantry were no longer bolstered by large armies of people that you could dispose of by sending them over to the front to swamp the German lines and then sending the guards armored units afterwards, which would clean up. You don't have they no longer had those capabilities anymore and they had to resort to a different style of fighting. And in that moment, there was the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet power. And I think that actually hit the Russian army quite hard. And the Russian way of war, we've assumed has always been very strong in certain fields, actually was a bit of a paper tiger in places. And the only things holding it together was the capability of the Air Force and the missile systems, the helicopters, you know, those gunships and the artillery. Because in the other units, the riffraff were not being trained to fight in the way of cannon fodder as they had in the past, and they didn't have the capability to fight as advanced infantrymen, perhaps, perhaps I'm suggesting, as British soldiers had been trained round about the time of the Iraq war when Richard Holmes went to visit his regiment and could say then that his infantrymen fought in a very capable way. I don't see that being replicated ever by the Russians since 1998. There's been this problem and I think the problem has been accentuated, which is why you needed the military reform in 2010 and why it went down the route of all that heavy artillery, all that missileage, all of those support vehicles, and yet the tanks and the infantry weapons started to fall away. I think that was a recognition that they could, that they were no long, no longer militarily a great power. The thing that you do then is, how do you disguise that? And I think what you do is you turn to genocide. So you pull the guns onto the cities and you commit crimes. And a similar situation I saw occurring with the German army in, in the Second World War. And then I've seen how you use limited resources in colonial wars. And it's always the same factor. If you don't have the power that you once had to to dominate your military opponent, if there is a military opponent, not always in colonies, but if you can't, if you do not have the confidence to dominate your military opponent, you have to resort to something else. And the, and the nature of violence changes. And I think Putin has institutionalized genocide, not just in the Russian way of war, but the entire strategic thinking. And so he's compensating for its great power, being able to project power like the Americans project power. He's projecting violence. It's compensating for power with violence. I would go with that, and I'll tell you why. As, as you've been just talking, the, I was rambling. 
no, no, no. Actually, no. You, you made a very good point, and, and I'm going to go back to a couple of couple of areas we, you discussed. And the first one was the the pre-collapse Soviet military. You know, for, for if we, if we take the, the that that sort of line in the sand of say 1988, spending in dollars was um, 250 billion per annum, um, and this is going off 2015 figures. Um, and then understandably it dropped. Um, and it dropped considerably, you know, quite sharply in 1991, the year of the uh, the Duma, um, the, the the failed sort of putsch um, by the communist hardliners. There, there's no spending at all that year. Um, whether that was punishment for being involved in that, I don't know. Um, but Soviet military expenditure has, has steadily grown, but nowhere near to the extent that it has been. You know, if you look um, by 2018. Its expenditure in billions was 63.1 billion. Um, now you compare that to the United Kingdom; they only spent uh, seven billion more than we did on their military. So you're looking at a country the size of the United Kingdom versus a country the size of Russia, with who have an infinitely larger physical army. So they've never fully invested, they've never fully caught up with the investment, and that has reflected in the, the poor quality of um, armour, which I'm just going to sort of talk about briefly in a moment. But also within that, and because of the, the nature of the, the Soviet military, the, the professionalism of the soldiers, which they have been addressing, has been lacking because they can't attract um, the, 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 the quality of individual to come serve with them because most of that quality will come from edu the educated sort of upper working class and middle classes uh, and these are the guys who are able to get away with not doing um military service these are the guys who've, who've got the the parents and the money and, and the contacts to get away with not doing it so you always have the poorly educated uh, leading the poorly educated it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of disaster Going, you know, and then we, one of the things that people keep saying is, you know, I've heard it several times in the news has been, well, actually, you know what? They're using outdated kit. Guys, hate to shock you. Even if you look at the most recent, you know, you look at some of the British kit, the FV400 series, 60 years old. The M113 series coming up to sort of, you know, same, same again, 60 years old. Challenger isn't particularly new, 20, 30 years old. Same with Abrams. Abrams, 1985. So it's, it's almost a false equivalency. But the difference here is that you have the professionalism, of the, you have a professional army. You know, if we're if we going to equate it with the British and the military, uh, the British and the Americans versus the Russians, we have a professional, large professional armies on the British American side. We have a large conscript army uh, on the Russian side. You've got lads who are signed up for 18 months. They're not interested. They don't care. With that comes poor discipline. With that poor discipline, you you know, combined with um, lack of pay, poorly paid, uh, poorly led, poorly equipped. We're looking at the morale thing, you know, which Neil Pointer discussed. So there's a lot more to this, and it's and it's like key factors in it: poor discipline. So what you're seeing is a reflection of like you very and you are absolutely on the nail with this. It is the decline. It is the visit. It is the it is the physical decline manifestation of a decline of a military power it carves in on itself we, we saw this um in yugoslavia it, it's it's this sort of it, it's almost 
the ending, is it? It's the beginning of the end for, for Russian military power. That's not to say it's the beginning of the end of the campaign in Ukraine, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But the fact that these acts of genocide, um, war crimes are happening should not be a surprise to anyone because they were happening in 1999 in, in Chechnya, the second Russo Chechen war. They happened again in Georgia, they happened again in Syria. Uh, why are we surprised? We should have we should have been not waiting for this, but we, we, we I cannot believe the West and people in the West have been so naive as not to expect this to happen purely because it's Europe or purely well, because I think, I think there's two arguments there. The, fir the first is um, mostly what's been at what most of all of this activity has been dictated by what we see and what we hear and what we read on Twitter or Telegram or one of Instagram or any of all of this stuff. And that's really only been around since what, 2010. So you have a, you have gaps in memory. I, I think it's very interesting that um, you have a certain amount of memory from 2010 forwards, maybe a little bit about the Iraq war, the odd bit about the Twin Towers 9-11 scenario. Um, but mostly it's quote modern stuff. And then in that modern period post 2010, um, you've had this um, burgeoning military history, especially from Britain and America, um, which is entirely focused on the Second World War. And that entire interpretation of world events has come from the age of total war. Um, so the fascinating thing here is you, we, we, we live in an age where we've got this modern war going on, which for some of us oldies is an extension of a war that's been going back to 1999. Um, but we're competing with young people who are, or younger people, who are drawing analogies to battles like Stalingrad and, and Bagration and projecting it onto this war, um, A, because they've got nothing else to cling to, um, but also because their own books come from that period. And um, I'm loath to say it, but I do get the impression that a lot of the nonsense that was going on until we with how people were selling their books, um, most of them not very relevant. Uh, I'm still unclear and have been since the start of this war how one American historian can adopt um, naval outlooks to a land war in the Ukraine. Um, it doesn't work for me. Um, I, I, I have been in group meetings with people and I have been shocked to learn how a lot of this so-called expert knowledge has been received and filtered and accepted as the um, proven answer to what's going on in the Ukraine. Uh, I listened to one the other day and <laughs> well, I, I was so shocked I didn't know what to say really. I, I, my, only, my only response was to say that in what 50 years of academic and enthusiast history of German arms since uh, 1870, uh, everything I heard was irrelevant um, and wrong. I mean, that, 
that was the that was the most fanciful thing. I was actually hearing things about the German armed forces, which were hard to believe. I mean, just utterly discreditable. And you know, I, I laughingly joke on Twitter about melting MG forty two gun barrels. I mean, I. <laughs> Yeah, I've read thousands of documents, literally ten thousand documents for my first book, and uh, just under sixty thousand documents and related works for the second and third books. Uh, and uh, I have yet to find melting gun barrels of German MG 42s, or that any of that is relevant to the present war that's taking place in the Ukraine. Um, and we and we we're all, it's almost full circle, isn't it? But it, it is well worth repeating this false equivalency. You know, we, are we going to carry on doing this, comparing con- contemporary events with a war that finished almost 80 years ago? Well, why are we still doing this? Why are we thinking that Stalingrad, which is an entirely different situation in so many ways, if you actually read the books, you, you would know instantly to even draw a parallel between what is happening in Ukraine and what is what happened in Stalingrad as part of Fall Blue? It, it, it's akin to turning up in a Formula One race in a Kettler car. Well, you know, I, it, I mean, the plastic over the weekend was some bright spark came up with the idea that it would take a million people, a million Russian soldiers to occupy the Ukraine. And it was so ludicrous. Such such nonsense. I mean, I was staggered. <laughs> I just the, the 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 idea that any occupation by a dictatorship requires such numbers in itself is a bizarre is a bizarre idea. I mean, you might need a million if you're going to do it the American or Western way of war, because you'll need all those civilian supporting agencies to make the things work. But for the Russians to occupy the Ukraine, if they do. Um, they'll need minimum forces because, first of all, a lot of the people who who originally lived in those Russia, uh, Ukrainian cities will be removed, either deported, deported or pushed out as refugees. Um, and many more, well, well, not more, but many will be executed, murdered. Um, and the whole situation in the Ukraine, like Chechnya, uh, totally reformed and recreated into some kind of uh, whatever Putin has got planned. I mean, what he did to Chechnya 20 years later is to turn it into a, a religious enclave of political charisma, of his own political charisma. Um, what he's got planned for the Ukraine, given what he did to Mariupol and what he did to the people who were captured around the Kharkiv area, is to me, only spells one thing. I mean, it's the genocide of the Ukrainian population. End. That's it. You don't need a million when you're doing genocide. When when you're resorting to genocide, it's minimum force. It, it, I, over the weekend, I must admit, I, I read an interesting, and it, and it might have been from you, an, an interesting sort of piece that suddenly said, you know, no, actually, I don't think it was from you, actually. I was saying that, you know, there was this drive, wasn't there, to surround Kiev within three days. 
at which point, because it's so close to the, the Belarusian border, he can just support ongoing attritional war, warfare against a city. He was going to besiege a modern European city um, with is it eight million occupants, eight million citizens in this in this sort of this, this pocket, and he was just going to nip away at it. And they reckon it would take three years, and he was quite happy to do that. That should really worry people. That should be sending the alarm bells because. He's not doing it to capture. He's doing it to destroy. And like you said, it is an extension of his, of this unwritten um, policy of genocide against third con- third countries that has be- that is going to define Putin's uh, foreign policy and his extension of use of the military. He's not well, doing it because it, you know. It, to- this is what makes me laugh about these so-called experts because by going to the wrong analogy. They don't realize that deep within the, the uh, uh, Russian uh, way of war and the idea of the Russian way of war is to lock people up in a siege and starve them and destroy them over a long period of time. If you can do that, then what you don't expend any you don't expend any forces. You just destroy piecemeal over a long period of time. The, the thing is that idea of warfare um first return to Europe um with Vukova, which was an 80 day siege. And just when everybody said, well, that's just about the worst war since the, the worst scenes of violence since 1945, um, we then saw uh, Srebrenica and Sarajevo and Kosovo, pretty much all one after the other. And one siege, I can't remember which of those, was 1400 days long. They were prepared to starve and destroy the conditions of the people living in that city for the best part of 1400 days. And what's staggering about this is people like Yeltsin were around endorsing it and supporting it. And who was behind Yeltsin? our friend Putin. So here we are seeing similar operations, similar use of genocide, similar use of murders and killings and deporting people and mass rape. All of those items, all of those acts of genocide were prevalent in Yugoslavia between 1989 and 1999. And the only way it was stopped was NATO bombing Belgrade, because up to that point, they would have they, the, the, the level of, of horror that either side was committing to each other was 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 taking us into a new dark age. And I still remember at the time people saying, well, you know, Yugoslavia is not Europe. <laughs> OK, so if it's not Europe. Why are you going on holiday there on the beaches while there's murder going on up the road? Oh, well, because it's cheap. And I I still remember a relative saying to me, yeah, if you go beaches on Croatia, there's, I think it's under, what is it, 18 to 30 orgies running on the beaches of Croatia. Um, and And it struck me as really, really odd that anybody would go to a zone or a country where genocide was publicly 
debated, discussed at United Nations, on the television, endless programmes. They couldn't equate the programmes that they were watching with them going on a beach for their summer holiday. They just could they just could not tie the two up. And, and <laughs> still to this day, I, I just find it incredible. It's like saying, oh, well, I think I'll just go for a holiday in Rwanda while they're chopping each other up. Uh, huh? Because I do know people who went to Rwanda when all of that was going on because they wanted to see it. That was different. They wanted to see it because they wanted to understand what had happened. But people going on holiday, you know, in war zones, and, and it's amazing. Back in the day, I, I put it down to the fact that back in the day, you didn't have that social media, which would have said to people, well, I'm not going to the Ukraine. Yeah. You're right. And, and, and as you know, as you always say, with the siege of Sarajevo, was it almost formed a template for what happened six years later in, in um, Chechnya, interestingly so. Um, Do you remember that the Serbian artillery bombarded that bridge at Mostar until the old Muslim bridge destroyed? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a piece of architecture with outstanding beauty. And the Serbians just wanted to destroy it. And they bombarded it with long-range artillery until that bridge came down. Now, what is that relationship between the Russians and the Serbians? Yeah. Is it just that they're Orthodox Russian church? Is it just that in the past Tito was a communist, that they were all communists together during the Soviet Union? Well, no, because Yugoslavia went one way and the Soviet Union went the other. But somewhere in that relationship of them going their different ways, Russian armour, Russian equipment, AK-47s arrived into the Yugoslavian army. And somewhere along the line, Russian advisors came along and helped the Serbian army in Croatia. And somewhere along the line, Boris Yeltsin um, did something which I, you know, looking back now, was quite devious. He actually put Russian troops in United Nations configuration and sent them into Yugoslavia to stop Sarajevo from being destroyed. And at the time, everybody was, well, what a kind and generous man. And isn't Boris a very nice man? Thinking back now and looking at it, I don't think he was. I think all along, as this massive empire of the Soviet Union and the East has disintegrated, all of these guys who were all connected to each other, like some kind of mafioso, have all been helping each other to maintain their, their different levels. And... And you only have to look at Milosevic's Serbian nationalism and Putin's recent discovery of Russian nationalism. I mean, when they were young men, they believed in a dialectic, Marxian dialectic, and were completely communist in, in more than basic communist ways. I mean, probably more Marx than Marxists. Um, but at the same time, these guys have come out of that war, uh, out of that period of indecision and conflict and and found a way. Now, Milosevic, in the end, was outed and captured. But when you think about it, who's going to do that to Putin? Putin's never going to end up in, a, in the international court or in some prison cell in, in The Hague. 
because you're just not going to be able to get to it. Um, and so we're confronting we're, in this genocide that we're we're confronting. We we are confronting something like Milosevic, but within the the realms of a great power that's actually crumbling before our eyes. And I'm not talking about the power of Russia. I mean, it's got its petrochemical industries and all that great stuff, and it and it's got fantastic universities and brilliant culture and all the rest of it. But actually, the notion of a great power, the will to be a great power, I think that's that's breaking. And, and what all of these guys are doing is responding to that collapse. And where before I originally thought that, you know, when I set the uh, paper on the Anaconda plan and I looked at the bombardment, I thought he's doing this because he needs to have a rapid, a fairly rapid victory to win the lodgements, to to take the offensive forward. And and it's all logical. What I'm seeing now, having seen what's actually happened in in these uh, towns and villages, since the the Russian army has retreated. And I'm always wary of an army that retreats and leaves evidence behind. Um, I've wondered why. And then we've seen the pictures of the genocide and it's telling me, well, okay, he's communicating political warfare to the Ukraine. He's telling the Ukraine that whatever happens in negotiations, Russia's going to destroy you. Yeah. This is what he does. This is what he's always done. So Zelensky might win a ceasefire. The fight might stop. But this war isn't over. And it's not going to end in Putin's mind until the Ukraine is destroyed. It's an interesting, and your closing remarks are interesting, and they are horrifying because you know he he has, putin has shown the the highest level of callousness to human life that i think we've we've sort of experienced for a generation and people and you know people forget this um and you know the anaconda plan i still think that's in play i think what's happened with the the withdrawal, and I'm going to call it that for the moment because we don't know, you know, the sort of leeching away from from the Kiev uh, oblast. Um, they've now retreated almost back to their their initial line of departure in in uh, Belarus. I I imagine he will try again, but I think he may try to the east um, of Kiev. Um, he may file, find a way in there and, and literally make his line of his the, the his area of operations a lot smaller and more manageable because he still has you know he still has that footprint in the the southwest of the country the south you know he's piling on the pressure onto Odessa now. Well, as far as I saw, he tried six lodgements and he's won four. Yeah, and and, he, and at the time of closing yesterday. Um, the impression I got was missiles were landing in Odessa. Yeah, he's he has um, he hit hit Odessa with six missiles yesterday, um, 
and he's hit the the petrochemical storage areas, which is what you would do in most wars uh, to prevent your enemy from uh, getting being able to to carry out war and manoeuvre. And what what is interesting is that just looking at a a brief. It's something odd that just occurs to me as you're saying that. Go on. Before it's all been random shelling and mayhem. Now he's taken out. You're saying he's taken out petrochemical industries. Yep. Targeted. Deliberately targeted. Prevent. So he's gone from the random to the specific. Yeah, he's 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 now looking at the strategic long term. He's he's that would to me indicate that he's now in this for the long term. But he's changed his capability, hasn't it? I mean, before, yeah. when the logistics guys and the tyres guys were going on about how useless they were and couldn't hit a, a barn door from a thousand paces, now we've got a situation where they've taken out the petrochemical, targeted them, and de- destroyed them. Yeah. That, and, 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 and hang on, am I missing something here? No, because you're, well, I think what, you, what we're seeing here is, is a refinement of the plan. They've gone... You know, if you look at look at the the whole situation over the past few past sort of month or so, the initial plan was rock up within three days, take Kiev, have your victory parade. You know, they they fell into this trap. We're actually going to use uh, a World War Two analogy here. Your know, boy Browning, when he dropped into in, in uh, during our, you know the market gone, he took his number ones with him for the victory parade. We see, you know, didn't quite work out for him then. The Russians did exactly the same. They they started their assault lead elements. They were finding their their best blues. Um, Our number one is Marks and Spencer's undies. <laughs> <laughs> I say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and, sorry, and, and so, I no, no, not at all. So, but is, I thought the Russians weren't capable of doing specific anymore and clearly they have the capability not only to do specific hits but also this random bombardment annihilation bombardment that it can that causes widespread killing and destruction so here we go again you know see what and and again this then leads to the next question the next consideration have they led us on a merry dance they are capable of it's the Maras. Um, the what is it? The Maraskova versus the rest of the de- the deceptions. The man of yeah. many deceptions. Maskarovka. That's the one. Mask- it's, it's, it's the Maskarovka, and and, and it's that's the part Maskarovka of it. within the Maskarovka that sets the Maskarovka for the Maskarovka. Yeah, it's all puppets in the puppet box. Ding, ding, out they come, different ones all the time, and we have four different stories. Uh, it's, it's, and, and this is part of the Russian way of war. It is the complexity. It is leaving people, you know, it is leaving people to guess what's going to happen next. Because this you is have how, the power to project power. Exactly. So you have to, you have to go with what you've got. And what is interesting is that there have been sightings of submarines from his Black Sea fleet. mincing around the Mediterranean all of a sudden you know very brazenly what's going on there it's all deception I you know he's he's whoever's I I think there's been there's been a step change sorry I thought they were rust buckets in Mamansk dissolving into the sea yeah you know leaving leaving the world with a poisonous legacy of, of 
But now they're saying they the around the Mediterranean, hey? Oh, that's good. You know, that, that, you know um, that must be very nice for the Sixth Fleet, which is supposed to be sailing around the Mediterranean at the moment with that great big aircraft carrier. So it, it must be quite crowded in the Mediterranean at the moment. Russian submarines and American Sixth Fleet. God, can you imagine if you're a fisherman with all of that lot going? <laughs> I, I I would imagine that the uh, the Turkish intelligence department are making an absolute killing and in selling information to the Americans right now. Well, they'll be giving. Well, you know. give it for free in NATO. I thought that was the thing. Actually, no, they do. Yes, that was that was a very flippant remark of me. They they give all the information to the Americans, and the Americans only allow it back if you pay for it. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. okay. Yeah. But you know, it, there, there is there is a step change, and I think he's starting to realise that the, the the typical Russian Russian hammer struck an anvil that's a little harder than it can normally take. Uh, and and this sort of and why is he doing this? You know, boils down to this loss of prestige, and this was picked up on by somebody recently, not in the direct way, but this with, with every you know Russian leader since almost since since Nicholas II. The weight of history has been such that they have to somehow project themselves militarily as a, as a very powerful nation. You can only get to, yeah, you know, and and you you've got to, and 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 it's like this sort of weight of history that this shadow that he's done it before, so I must do it. He got beaten, so I must win, or I won, but I must run win better. Well, apart from a couple of harmless interventions, Brezhnev and Khrushchev weren't very violent if i remember rightly no they weren't no and, and i i don't i don't think i'm not saying that you know that that is i mean they did a state, it's a permanent state of thought a group thing within within especially within the soviet presidium i don't think that existed but i think within certain because people have their own doubts about their own um they're wanting to rebuild as you said very clearly you know early in in, in the conversation this this uh, model of a new russia they, you know, they want to regenerate this this nationalism of a strong Russia. I think it's very interesting that we've gone. There was a time when Dayton's and the ABM Treaty placed Russia and America on a parallel. Hmm. Yeah, they were on an equal position. Um, by the way, what I said before, I didn't say that I wasn't meaning that Brezhnev and Khrushchev were nice people not committing wars. I'm just suggesting that they weren't running the, to the kind of violent wars that we've seen with Putin. Anyway, come the ABM Treaty, which I think was somewhere around about 1970, um, when that was signed, that placed Russia and America in parallel. And I always got the impression, and I remember my old professor Martin Edmonds saying, that that created not the mad, you know, the mutual assured destruction scenario. It created a, a level of detente between the, the Americans and the Russians, which made the, the Russians, gave them a confidence that they didn't need to go around battering people all of the time. Now, if we project that later, where um, Bush decides he doesn't want the ABM treaty, and that was all around the time when Putin was asking whether he could be in NATO because he had helped the Americans in Kandahar and places. 
you know, I'm wondering when you take that ABM missile, you, those, those kind of treaties away, whether suddenly that ramps up Russian um, lack of confidence. Maybe that exposes something within their inner feelings that they are losing pace with America. America can decide that they don't, they want to abandon this treaty. But for the Russians, it was to hold them to the Americans. Now, by abandoning the treaty, America is able to go on ahead, streets ahead, leaving Russia behind. And that therefore, by doing that, that puts even more pressure on the Russians to perform in various activities. And you, it's quite interesting, after that ABM treaty was dropped, Russia becomes incredibly aggressive for the next 20 years. Why? Sorry. Uh, no, it just it's just occurs to me as we've been talking um, that these things, it's these little things which change the military culture. You know, anybody wants to go on about the Russian army in 1945 doing stuff in Berlin, right? That's irrelevant. We're, we're, we're talking about here what the crumbling empire is going through as um, a psychological a psychological um, change, which is ripping through the national polity of the whole nation. And, and you wonder whether these things, whether you chip away at these things and say, OK, well, we're not going to have detente anymore. Um, we're going to have NATO right up to your borders. Um, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. I wonder how much of that digs into uh, growing fears of of a nation that's collapsing. And and, and I'll tell you now where I get a feeling of this suddenly, the more we've yeah. talked about it, and it's your ideas that are fueling this, so it's your fault. So I have to <laughs> say In the 19th century, the latter half of the 19th century, there was a big feeling in Germany that the nation was dying. That the nation had come to the point where it couldn't go any further. The population was growing, but people were leaving. They were either going to America or they were going to the colonies. The nation was perceived of dying. And there was a perception of decline. If you read many of the um, major writers of that time, there was a sense that their glory had come in 1870 and it'd never be the same again. And when Kaiser Wilhelm II comes to power, um, he accentuates the notions of we have to confront decline, almost suggesting that Bismarck was allowing it to happen and we must go away from what Bismarck was doing. Yeah, I noticed this. There's a book out there about this period, um, but it really doesn't address the serious aspects of German history at this time. And one of those is the decline of the of the fear of decline in the mindset of um, German leaders. And when you get to looking at the Schlieffen plan, I always found it quite interesting that you'd have people who would say there would be no Schlieffen plan. Well, whether you, whether you had a Schlieffen plan or not, you still, if you're a German, you have to think about two front wars and three front wars and 
the French being problematic about revenge and the Russians wanting to have imperial empire in the east. So the, so any German strategist worth his salt, doesn't have to be Schlieffen, is going to come along and say we have to have a strategy to cope with these problems. Now, if you magnify those problems against the fear of decline, you're going to go about building a military force which is running towards two things. One is to win two front wars, but making sure that the enemy doesn't, doesn't come back at you. So you create a level of fear. Now, we all know about what happened in 1914 when the German army marched into Belgium and northern France. It dispensed fear by killing people on the grounds that they were front terreur like they had been in 1870. And a lot of that story is false. Um, but if you look at what people write in the local community, there's an awful lot of fighting that was going on from uh, civilian militias, the civil guard fighting the German army as it's coming along. And the, and the Germans referred to them as front terreur. Belgians and French refer to them as heroic soldiers. And that's that perception of, of fighting. But actually, if you dig deeper and compare what's going through the mindset of the German leadership there, and also with what's going on on the Eastern Front, because the Russians invade and they come into Eastern Prussia and cause no end of mayhem. Um, that also accentuated fears that Germany was in decline. Um, during the occupation in the East, the German soldiers, when they're doing what they're doing in the First World War on the Eastern Front, are all I mean, Sergeant, Sergeant Grisha, um, uh, Zweig's book, if you read deep into what's going on in the, in the story, you see fears of backwardness hitting the German army and the German nation and the German state, that it's going backwards. It's winning, but it's going backwards. And you get that later with Hitler and, and the right-wing cronies in Germany going, on about you know Germany's got to awake it's got to refine its for power and this notion that somehow if you recreate Germania you're going to get back to some noble uh, wellspring of German society you know Germanness now I wonder if Russia is going through the same and 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 you look at that I'm not comparing battles now I'm comparing how culture breaks down and how old values, old traditions um, are accentuated by fear, which is further accentuated by nostalgia. And we end up in a situation where the society is breaking down, not in the way you think it's breaking down, because you assume, oh, people are going on television and saying Putin is the greatest man and thousands of people want to support the war and go, that's not breaking down. Breaking down is a lot more the fear that they're not winning, even though you're winning. And so you go to another level of violence, you raise the level of violence, the politics of violence gets worse. You encourage soldiers, individual soldiers to commit heinous crimes, and then you award them huge medals. I mean, the, the thing I noticed when I was follow, trying to trace um, the war crimes in in Poland 
how much the ordinary soldiers were participating in killing women and children. And they were doing it within, you know, the cat badge, I think you call it in the military, the cat badge, the, the unit you're in. Um, what you were doing was regarded as correct. You weren't getting told off for killing them. You weren't getting iron crosses, but you weren't being told off. You were you were given a bottle of vodka at the end of the week and you could go and sit in the officer's mess or the soldier's mess and get drunk. But in the week before, you have been spending most of your time patrolling forests, killing civilians. Um, and, and the thing is, when you when you're doing that there's a huge amount of effort which is remarkable i mean that, that that's the thing that gets me about what's happening with all the discussions about um the genocide in the ukraine it all seems so easy but actually to go through that process it's quite a challenge you know, there's a lot of initiation to murder. There's a lot of processing to killing people. How you kill people is, uh, it, it's a very, it, it's not as easy as it appears. You don't just walk up to somebody and stick a gun to their head and shoot them. Not without, you know, consequences. Worst of all, you get covered in stuff and all of that kind of thing. So you've got a process. Now, if the military culture is dying, mentally, culturally, and that's dipping down to the soldier on the ground, he's going to be encouraged to commit murder as a military act to save the nation. And that is ugly. That's ugly because you can't, you can't very easily break that. Okay, you might think, well, you know, a week later that soldier is fighting hard, he's destroying tanks and he's just an ordinary soldier again. So he's had this phase of murdering and then suddenly he's back to being a soldier again. The, the problem is that's happened and then you'll go back to murdering again and then you'll go back to killing again. These things never go away because once those soldiers come home, they commit heinous crimes. Don't ever think that German soldiers came home and there was no more criminality. Because when they came back from the East in the 1950s, there was a sudden surge of, of social crime. So the impact of social crime after criminal warfare is very high. Now imagine that's been fed back into the into Russian society in the in the 90s after Grozny, or Aleppo, or Afghanistan. Yeah. You've got a social record of murder that's been circulating within your military culture and with your society. That then comes back again in an aggressive form to the men on, on the front because they're fighting for survival. And if Putin is pushing this argument that you've got to save Russia by destroying Ukraine, which appears to be the case, then you're on this escalation. Uh, and you're fighting this kind of, well, it's a, it's a horrible mindset. Um, no. And it's funny how much it comes out into writing years later. I found um, a German forester who served as an officer in the Polish forest when they were at the height of the murdering of Jews in the 
you know, in my book, Birds of Prey. And he was writing about killing a stag. Now, this might sound strange, but he was writing about killing a stag in the direct way they killed a group of Jews. I looked at it and said, that's the same. Now, in the book, I don't say that. I'll leave that for people to see. But I could trace that move because when we got the GPS and we followed the route in which the the people were killed. And so we went down the route because there's no documents for that stuff. You have to follow the route given the, the coordinates on a map. We got to the end and there it was. And then I read this you, book. When, when, you're, when you're discussing this, there, there's, there, there are two themes that are coming to me as, as you're talking. They can be related almost to this this sort of um, the, the crimin, this rise of criminality in 1950s Germany. Um, what's occurring now within Ukraine? What's occurring within the Russian borders? And what's occurring within the Russian political system is this this collapse because it, it is it's you know what what happens when Putin goes what, what's going to happen is going to be it's going to be a, a miasmic implosion isn't it you know um, and it also and and you and, and and you've hit the nail on the head that since the collapse of the Soviet Union the Russians and this is not making any excuse whatsoever for, for behaviours because it is not but it is identifying what's caused it is a sense of, in, of in, they, didn't, they didn't feel equal that there was an inadequacy on the global That's stage the i'm searching for it's this it's a form of national inadequacy yeah inadequacy which i've written down the politics i've actually written this down not equals the politics of inadequacy yeah um, and, you know and the, which have led to the politics of violence gosh i'm, I'm rather out of the game here today um and that's where we're at isn't it you know we, we we've had they, they've lost their, the the the, the as, as the soviet union they were equals with the united states of america as the, as the russian federal as, as they are now the russian federation they're not they're in and and so there's this and, and the russian way is it was beautifully summed up i think um in, in the uh robert duval stalin film you know when he said, you know, the best boots are Georgian boots, and I'm sure I said this before, because they can withstand a good kicking. And it is this, you know, it is the medium of violence is is the norm. It's how they deal with things. Um, but it can be tempered, like I say, d- depending on the, on the domestic situation. And you rightly pointed out to, uh, to Khrushchev and the other chap. So we're seeing this almost... Rational. That's it, yes, Rosneft. We're seeing this collapse now, aren't we? Uh, of the domestic. Um, it's not like I say, it's a slow implosion, isn't it? So the only way to get out of it <coughs> is to externalise that. I think it used to be said back in the day the nations went to war because they had a problem at home. Yeah. And I think the problem here at home is not that, it's not that Putin doesn't have followers. I actually think he's probably well favoured. I think the problem for, for Putin is he knows that he can't keep providing um, a society that is gradually failing um, in glory, in all the things that once were um, 
Russia's, I don't know, um, major characteristics and qualities. Those, that those ideas have gone, and I think it. You know, when you fight, when you try to adjust to a changing situation, and your identity is reducing, your your um, the things that you value, your traditions, all of those things start to melt. And you no longer have the story. It's like the example, for instance, of this huge church that he created to the celebration of the Second World War and the Great Patriotic War and all of that. That always struck me as odd because, it, you know, OK, if you read some books, there was this story that somehow the churches were coming back in the Second World War to encourage people to fight and Stalin um, allowed the church to come back and what have you. But OK, I'm not really sure how that affected the Red Army. It's not like you, the Red Army was spending a lot of its Sunday afternoons having church time. Kind of got the more impression that, OK, religiosity might be allowed at home, but the Red Army was giving more and more of a free hand to fight its wars. What we have now is this reinterpretation of religiosity into the memory of the great patriotic war and the second world war and it comes along that the church now is the great provider to memory and therefore this memory must now be fueled into a russian army which is really pretty not very good um and then sent out to war on some kind of moral crusade to save russia by destroying the ukraine that that's a that's a really oddball and it's so off the wall you think well okay that's blood and his mates having weird wonderful thoughts on a lunchtime podcast but you can see it, it, it it's so easy to see i mean ian garner has produced a, a wonderful thread about the real you know the religious side of, of russian uh religiosity behind this war at the same time, he's talked about nationalism. My interest was the way the young kids throughout Putin's early period in power were encouraged to be politically active. Now, those young kids who were in their lower teens in, in the, at the start of his regime in, you know, in the early days, 2006, seven, they're grown up now. They're his front fighters like Hitler's SS. They're, they're, they're the guys who are keen. And the other thing is, which I also find very interesting, and I'm going back to it again because I know people like to discuss it, is why these officers are dying. And I still maintain that in a broken system, if the reforms haven't worked, the only people who can educate soldiers at the front are those at the top. Because the trickle-down effect of reform and doctrine hasn't reached the low end. Because if you haven't completed your military reforms, you can't have a doctrine that works because the troops have never been worked up to the doctrines. So that's another sign of the growing problem of this army, that it needs, it needs its generals to die at the front, not only to re-establish its identity as a proud fighting force but at the same time 
to show the soldiers exactly what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, that's a remarkable thing. And then in all of this stuff that's out there in the stratosphere of madness, we've watched the Russian army walk away. Um, um, I always feel very, very cautious when an army like this walks away. And if you look to what happened in Yugoslavia, when the Serbians walked away, it meant some doom being visited on somewhere else. And like you said, I think in this war, uh, the East and the, and the South are definitely going to receive more attention than they perhaps had while Kharkiv and Kiev were um, at the forefront of the fighting. But I don't think that it's over up there because not recently um, missiles landed on Lviv. So it's not like the North and the, and the, and the West areas are out of this war together. I think there's still, I think there's still a lot to play. And then we have this discussion that he's called up 154,000 conscripts and people saying, well, you know, they're never going to be deployed. Mm, OK, if you can prove it. But it doesn't strike me that Putin's the kind of guy who mobilizes troops and then doesn't use them. Unless he's concerned um, that the army might be causing fractures back at home. So he needs an army to stabilize Moscow and these other places. I always thought if it, if that was the case, it would be like 1941 all over again with the armies from Serbia and Mongolia marching through the streets of Moscow, re-establishing power and authority just before the counterattack against the German armies on December the 5th, 1941. So if if his society is breaking down, I wouldn't have thought it would be recruits in Moscow. It would be troops from the east where we also know they're very keen on him because he has he has been quote good at restoring their sense of value within the empire so there's a lot going on and actually we don't we we don't know a real lot about all of this because back to the maskarovka he's managed to maintain a a pretty clever um silence policy um which I also think is another indication of genocide. Um, why, why write papers to say that you're going to kill the people of Mariupol? Why, why do anything more than just pick up a telephone, a landline, so it can't be traced, or just go up to somebody and say, "Well, there's your coordinates. Now just just destroy them," and it's on the back of a, you know. A, small calculator you gps the digits in and the gun fires and that's the end of that street then that building and then everything else i don't there's a big story maybe we've only touched a little bit but there are all those indications silence when everybody else is chattering he's imposed silence on those troops and not only that which I think is also fascinating, he's allowed the Ukrainians 
to take their cameras and to have the the whole kit and caboodle of the war to their own, but their so his soldiers haven't gone in with cameras. And that's a clever move because basically he has stopped his own soldiers from showing pictures of them shooting people. There are ramifications of that. Because if you look at the war crimes, it's all coming from one direction. And the supporters of Putin are saying, no, this is all staged. Now, I know I've been attacked on there because I've said that unless you get forensic evidence, there's always somebody get, having an alternative view to a photograph. So you have to have forensic reports and the and forensic investigation to counter claims that counter the evidence. Now, people think, oh, you're dismissing the evidence. I'm not. I just happen to know what happened in the past. Slobodan Milosevic would say, no, I never signed any papers to kill people. Nothing to do with me. Uh, OK, a couple of militia went mad, but they're not in the army. So you had this huge debate back back in the 90s. What is a war crime? How does a war crime happen? Well, one thing is you take away all the newspapers, the sorry, the, the writing papers, the typewriters, the, the decision authority, and you put it down to a man speaking in somebody's ear who says, oh, go and kill them. And it's very interesting that when you look at how the the decision to commit to killing people in Yugoslavia was conducted and comparing it now. Because the Serbian militia and the Serbian soldiers, when they went and killed masses of people, it was face to face. The officer said, oi, kill them. And off they went. And they did it. And, and what are the other similarities? Well, they put these people on trucks, took them to a field, got a tractor and plowed them into the ground. Well, OK, I've heard that story somewhere before in the last 48 hours. So it's like, you know, we've been through process and process and process, and here we are, we're debating about a subject. Actually, we've had a lot of knowledge about because we've known this was going to happen. That brings me back to this argument, you know, the only, how are you going to stop this if you can't get Putin to stop fighting? How do you stop it? And we're in this very cleft stick in the West. As the West starts to suffer from massive food shortages and social crimes now are starting to occur because there's a lack of food on the shelves and arguments in shops over how much oil you can take, you know, who's going to last first? Who's going to drop out first in this game, the Russians or the West? And I think he's playing a very, very, very interesting game in the economic warfare. And nobody's even bothered to take a second moment to think, well, maybe this guy is actually fighting the Ukraine, but at war with the West. That's another, that's another ball game again. We're back to the cultural problem. If he wants to, if he wants to supercharge Russia, he does that by destroying the West. 
It's a strange logic. No, but it makes sense. And this thing if, is, if you impose energy embargo and and um, poverty, rank poverty like the scale of the depression, and you create shortages of food, so we're into some kind of 19th century scenario, then actually, whether we like it or not, the West is in a battle with Russia for the survival of the West. I just don't think anybody's realised that. Nobody has picked up on the fact that there's no sunflower oil in the shops anymore. Because they don't know where bloody sunflower oil comes from. They think if you go to the chippy, well, he's got a big pan of oil. He puts a load of potatoes in it and then there's my bag of chips. Well, hang on a minute, sunshines. Where does that oil come from? And Turkey's announcing there's no sunflower oil. That's a that's. <laughs> That's a devastating situation to be in. And if if he imposes rules on gas and petrol, fuel, oil, we're back to not 1973-74 situations where the oil prices are going up, but we're actually to 1970 when Ted Heath had no electricity and people were, like me, were doing their homework by candlelight. Well, I'd love to see all these iPads working when there's no electricity. So he, it, in a foul swoop of economic warfare, he can destroy all the communication systems, all the social media, all the activities that we've all come to and enjoy. And literally the framework of the West is threatened. <laughs> People are saying, well, you know, just pay a bit more. So, yeah, OK, well, you know, this household, we've got a 300 percent increase on our energy prices. But here's something else which is quite interesting. At Christmas, a bottle of sunflower oil was less than a euro. And the last bottle that was sold at Aldi today in Arkham was five euros. Well, that is a hell of a change. And there's no sunflower oil going back on the shelves. Can you get flour? No. Flour's all gone. So all of these items which everybody has taken for granted and we used to walk past, you know, bag of flour for less than 50p, it's gone, disappeared. Nothing on the shelves. And then you ask yourself, well, okay, well, it won't affect other food, will it not? Well, how do you distribute food if you've got no oil to put it in the vehicles? So suddenly the whole of the food supply system that we've built up in, in the West, which have been carefully built up over 40 years, an integrated system that, you know, in some countries still had railway lines with trucks and with combined harvesters and the whole process, kit and caboodle, that everything. How does that work when oil's removed? That was, and, and I, I, I can't believe that strategic analysts who pretend to understand the world from the, you know, the US Navy supplying the world and winning the war can't contemplate what would happen if all the oil and electricity is switched off. That's beyond me.
there, there is this whole and, and this highlights a massive gap in knowledge because people are still looking at this with the military head. They don't look at the wider picture, the wider impact. They don't look at, you know, like you say, they're not looking at food. And you know, as you listen, you think, well, what, what's what's the relevancy of the sunflower? Well, the sun, the U, um, Ukraine are the world's number one producer of sunflower oil. Now, they have literally four weeks in which to get the seeds planted. They've got this four-week window left. If that window it's not met and it's looking like it's not going to be you can see the old sunflower seed um fields uh especially sort of the, the east country um tanks in them left right and center um it is interesting i'll come on something else about crops um they've not been prepared they've not been they're not ready now we've still got fighting in those areas the russians are now started to put put um, mine spreading artillery they've put some mine spreading artillery rounds in those areas so we've now got to clear the growing areas of anti-personnel anti-vehicle mines so we're going to miss a growing season at least one one if you look at other videos um there was a video recently uh, of a cam off that was shut down shot down sorry and he landed in a wheat field everyone's looking at the thing trying to think where he's been hit i'm looking at the video thinking why is the stubble not being ploughed in yet? Why is the ground not being prepared? Why is there not, you know, why is nothing? Because they can't, because it's war. He has hit at the right time. I've said this before. I'm going to sound like I was getting James O'Brien moment. I've said this before. He has timed this perfectly. His assault has been timed to interrupt with the planting and preparation season. And well, best we've got four weeks, four weeks, and then we're going to miss a year. Now, while the wheat won't affect the West particularly, it's going to affect sub-Saharan Africa. The Chinese have said they can meet production, but the Chinese are now being very coy about what they're saying about the Russians. So are they going to be able to meet the production to mix that gap? This is, this is a lot more than just taking a, a land grab. This is something, and as you rightly say, Phil, it's going to drive up inflation in the in Europe. It's going to drive up fuel poverty. It's going to drive up poverty in general. It's going to drive hunger. And, and none of these things are really being appreciated. I mean, some people are picking up on it. Thankfully, in America, they are. There's a Secretary of State uh, for Agriculture, and one of his uh, undersecretaries has picked up on this. And she's set people right on, on the facts, which is brilliant, and that's great, and I'm so glad she's done that. They seem to be the only people who are really noticing it. And the EU are definitely quiet about this, and that worries me. Well, OK. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind with the EU is, will they allow the fallow fields, which have just been left to do nothing for years, are they going to be put back into action? But take that aside for a minute. His, his actual social change in a community. My partner is a food saver. And she's part of an organized group that saves food for a whole load of purposes, um, mostly for unemployed people or for disabled or for disadvantaged or for, in one case, people in prison so that they get fresh vegetables and fruit and all the rest of the good stuff. Well, normally when they go to the big supermarket on a Monday, there's usually round about uh, 40 bags when I say bags, that's a shopping bag yeah. that the, the, the 10 of them normally have um, from wasted food. So that's usually food, which is like uh, two weeks beyond sell by date and all the rest of it. OK, 
there were five this morning. That's a huge draw. And what I saw over the weekend, as I said, with food incidents and food social crime, um, including a very senior official um, running away from a crime, uh, from a crime scene having stolen a bag of pasta. Um, I am, I am greatly concerned. I'm greatly concerned because in countries where there isn't a decent infrastructure or traffic, public, pu public transport, those countries are going to have a tough time because if you rely on motor vehicles, you ain't going to get, be able to get your jobs. And if you've got problems with electricity and gas, well, some of the trains aren't going to run. Uh, and the buses aren't going to go. So the, the, the scale of uh, fall and decline in infrastructure um, is huge. Phil, thanks for your time today. We, we've covered a lot of ground there. Greatly appreciated. Uh, listener, I hope you've enjoyed this particular discussion. It may sort of seem a little left field at times, but actually it, it all does come about. And I know it's a very long session. Um, so thanks for bearing with us. Uh, Phil. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Appreciate you busy. No worries. That was very interesting. Actually, I found it interesting for once. <laughs> You're the main contributor. <laughs> what? Oh, shit. <laughs> Did I swear? Beep. I need a beep button for this one. Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh gloom. Um, <laughs> Listener, wherever you are, um, please do take care. And I'm going to give a special shout out to all our US, US listeners in Virginia. Yeah, that's how good my tracking is. Thanks for listening, uh, guys and girls. Um, as always, I know we do have listeners um, in Ukraine. I know we, we picked up a few more. So I hope you're all safe and sound wherever you are. Um, and you are in our thoughts. I know words are just words. I hope things do get better. Uh, but until next time, listener, wherever you are in the world, TTFN. Goodbye. <laughs>